0: Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by his presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process. Becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Good morning. How are you guys? You guys ready? We're gonna have some fun. I'm excited to jump into our text today and unpack what I believe God wants to speak to uh, us as individuals, but more than that, us as a family. Um, So I'm pumped, here's the thing, after spending about a month of December celebrating Advent and then taking last week to kind of refocus our vision around becoming a spirit-filled people of participants in a family who are living uh, and seeking to live our everyday lives open and in partnership with and in submission to the spirit. Today, we are back in our Becoming Like Jesus series, which I'm pumped about. So. Maybe you're like me, and as someone who can like, hardly remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, much less what we were talking about four months ago, I want to take us back just for a second to how we started this series to hopefully remind us of why, of why we're spending so much time trying to understand what it means and what it looks like to become like Jesus. So back in October, we as a church set out on a journey through the book of Luke to discover and unpack the priorities and the practices of Jesus's life so that we can learn and grow in what it means to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi Jesus. And we began our series with this very simple but significant acknowledgement of reality. And it's this, we are all becoming someone Like you heard in the bumper video, it's not a matter of if we are becoming, but rather of who we are becoming. Whether we're aware of it or not, every single one of us here today, intentionally or unintentionally, is becoming someone for better or for worse. And being the meaning-making creatures that we are who live with this sort of baseline desire to live a good, safe, and satisfying life, how we define the good life, what our vision is for that, is ultimately what directs and determines the thousands of decisions we make every day. And as those days turn into weeks and months and years, it ends up giving shape to the people that we are becoming In a sentence, our vision of the good life is the vehicle that drives our decision-making and determines the kind of people we become. And no doubt, like I think we all get this on some level, no doubt there are a lot of things that are competing for the driver's seat in our lives, many of which hold out this empty promise of security and satisfaction, but are never able to deliver on it. But we believe that there is one who can make good on that promise, and his name is Jesus. Yes? His name is Jesus. And at A Jesus Church, we are utterly convinced that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that his life leads us into the life that is truly life. And so the question for us today is twofold. Number one, do you want the life that is truly life? Do you want it? And if yes, will you follow him there? Will you follow his lead? Will you trust his leadership and follow him even when the directions seem upside down, even when the directions grate against the very strong current of culture that we are swimming in? I believe so deeply that the word and for some of us, including myself, the warning that Jesus is inviting us to receive today is both for our freedom and our flourishing. The picture that kept coming into my mind as I thought about this time to be together today in God's word was this picture of someone tilling soil and just this deep sense that God it he wants to do a work of breaking up the fallow ground of our hearts. He he wants to speak into something in our lives so that the soil of our hearts is free to receive the abundance that I believe he wants to plant in us. That's the picture, that's the sense that I have over today. That God in his kindness, he wants to break up anything in our life that's causing a lack of fruitfulness or a false sense of fruitfulness or 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 a short-lived shallow fruitfulness in our lives so that we're free to receive but not just receive but then give away the life that is truly life so that's where we're headed today are you ready All right, you're gonna need a Bible. If you've already got one, turn with me to Luke chapter nine. If you don't, you can raise your hand and we have some awesome people who would love to give you one. And as you're turning to Luke chapter nine, I wanna remind you that we've mapped out a reading plan for you to be tracking with throughout the week. Uh, If we wanna become like Jesus, we have to know what he says. Don't take my word for it. It's not good for you, okay? You gotta read the word. And so we've mapped it out. I encourage you to follow along if you've already lost that card. I did too, it's okay, no shame. It's on our website. Casey has beautifully put it up on our website. It's right smack dab when you go to Jesuschurch.org, You just click on the link that says reading plan and it'll take you to all the good stuff. But hopefully that was enough time to get to Luke chapter nine. Why don't you uh, stand with me? We're gonna hit a couple of different parts of this chapter, so try to track along. Luke chapter nine, verse one. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people don't welcome you, leave their town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So the disciples set out and they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Skip down to verse 12. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, Jesus, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. But Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, to which Luke fills us in. It was a big crowd, about 5,000 men were there. So that's not including the women and children that were undoubtedly there as well. But he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate, every single one of them. (laughs) and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. One more spot. And just before we get to our last text, this is uh, being spoken to the disciples right after Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? They say, we believe that you're the Messiah. And then Jesus in saying this, flips up their idea of Messiah on its head. He says this in verse 22, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? and yet lose their very self. This is the word of the Lord, you can be seated. In chapter nine and in the book of Luke as a whole, Luke is developing and drawing out a key theme in the life and the teachings of Jesus that many of us, including myself for sure, often turn a blind eye toward. And that theme is this unavoidable connection between the eternal quality of life in God's kingdom and the material possessions that we accumulate along the way, making a connection between his kingdom and our stuff. And the feeding of the 5,000, don't miss it, just in chapter nine alone, well, before I get there, this one, when he sent out the 12, Jesus gives them power and authority to heal and proclaim the kingdom, and there's something There's something about Jesus' instruction to limit their amount of possession that plays this part in protecting them from depending on their stuff instead of the spirit. In the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples, they get to be a part of what happens when they freely offer up the little bit that they have to Jesus, and then get to be a part of ministering to the massive crowd of hungry people through Jesus's power and provision instead of their own. The result of which is Jesus taking their little and turning it into leftovers. And then in verse 25, Jesus makes it clear that seeking to save your life through control, comfort, or acceptance in and through the world instead of Jesus, only distance you further away from what you desire most, resulting in the loss of your life instead of gaining it. Do you see it? Jesus is making a connection between the eternal quality of life in his kingdom and the material possessions that we accumulate along the way. And friends, if we want to become like Jesus, we have to see this connection. But more than see it, we have to understand it and consider how our unchecked consumerism is competing for our souls Now, how can our soul remain uncompromised in that competition? In a word, simplicity. There's a whole lot for us to unpack around this practice of simplicity, and we're going to actually spend the next couple weeks doing just that by looking at different texts in the book of Luke. But for today, our focus is going to be on the simplicity of possessions and how it relates to our becoming like Jesus. You tracking with me? How many of you grew up being soothed to sleep or maybe trying to soothe your own babies to sleep uh, by that famous lullaby, hush little baby? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, good. I have distinct memories of being a little girl and playing pretend baby dolls. And anytime our babies would start to cry, we would uh, scoop them up, pull them close to our chest and try to uh, uh, soothe their fake cries with the lyrics of this lullaby hush little baby, don't say a word, mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. Mockingbird. And if that mockingbird don't sing, mama's gonna buy you a Diamond. diamond ring. And if that diamond ring is brass, mama's gonna buy you a looking glass. And if that looking glass gets broke, mama's gonna buy you a billy goat. That's about as much of the song that my memory could retain, but I looked up the rest and the song just goes on and on about all the different things that mama's gonna buy to comfort her crying baby to sleep. I was curious about this song's origin, so I did a little digging, but I really didn't find much other than that this song most likely originated from the Southern region of the United States. It's interesting to me. The more I thought about that, the more I realize that this song, in a sense, is the same song that so many of us continue to sing over ourselves when we want to be comforted or made to feel secure or satisfied. Sure, we probably don't sing those exact lyrics. That would probably be kind of weird. But consumerism, this idea that the more we have, the happier we'll be, has become our culture's default response to discomfort and our primary way of pursuing satisfaction and security when the storms big or small of life start hitting us. J.D. Rockefeller, a man who has been widely considered the wealthiest American of all time was once asked in an interview, how much money is enough? To which he responded, just a little bit more. Rockefeller's response reveals a core truth of the human condition that we can trace all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it's this. The more we get, the more we want. This is the endless and the enslaving cycle of consumerism playing on our fear that who we are and what we have is not and never will be enough. We have a tendency to respond to that fear, that insecurity by grabbing hold of possessions as a sturdy thing to hold on to. And there's a reason why we tend to do that. Neuroscience shows us that the dopamine, that feel good chemical in our brain is released, get this, not just in the act of buying something, but even in just the thought of buying something. I was wrecked by that this week, absolutely wrecked. So in a sense, more does make us feel happy, it does. But there is a catch and a cost that I hope we wake up to today. German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer exposes the fragile foundation that consumerism is built on. He said, wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become, and the same is true of fame. Trying to quench our thirst for more through consumerism, it does make us feel good, but only for a moment. Social science proves how that feel-good moment is fleeting, and in the end, like seawater, it dries us out. In short, more isn't always better. Case in point, double-stuffed Oreos. No, you cannot convince me that a double-stuffed Oreo is better than the OG. Just because it has more filling does not make it better. Anyone else agree with me? Okay, great. So when you see a double-stuffed Oreo, just remember the myth of more. More is not always better. Yeah, come on. It's a good word. All of our attempts to satiate the desire for control and comfort through consumerism, in a lot of ways it seems harmless. It's not hurting anyone, we say which if you do more digging and research, you can find out that actually our habits around consumption are in fact hurting lots of people. There's worse things that we could be doing. We rationalize as we, as I mindlessly scroll through Instagram ads and sift through the 1,000 deals and discount codes in my email that attempt to sell me happiness and a better life by making my home and my wardrobe more trendy at 25% off if I act fast. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman as she confronted her desire for more. He sold her the lie that reaching for more would actually free her to become more like God and she bought it. But soon after, her eyes were opened to see the tragedy of how eating the fruit only distanced her from what she desired most, which was God himself, her truest desire. And instead of making her free, she became a slave. Like a crying baby whose eyes are slowly shut at the sound of a lullaby, how quickly do we close our eyes to the impact that our unchecked habits of consumption are having on our souls? And the very significant role they play in shaping the kind of people that we're becoming. Like our first parents, how quickly we fall into the temptation of what Jesus referred to as the deceitfulness of riches, and of what Paul warns us of in First Timothy 6, when he says, those who wanna get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, Eager for money, they've wandered away from the faith, and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Jim Carrey is just one of many who gives voice to the kind of grief that Paul is talking about. Jim Carrey says, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see that that's not the answer. Luke develops the connection between the eternal quality of the kingdom and the possessions that we accumulate along the way, perhaps most vividly through his record of Jesus's interaction with the rich young ruler. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. In this day and age, not super unlike our world that we live in now, to be wealthy was considered a clear sign that that your life was blessed by God. But curious, or perhaps even disillusioned by this understanding of the blessed life, this rich young ruler has a question. So he goes to Jesus and this is what he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Often we hear this question, we assume that the rich young ruler is asking, how can I get into heaven? But what he's really asking is how can I experience the life that is truly life? Not not how do I get into heaven one day when I die, but how can I enter into the life that is truly life, the kind of life that I'll want to go on living forever? And Jesus responds to his question by quoting five of the 10 commandments, the five that, that are often placed in the category of our outward expression of righteousness, love for neighbors. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the man replies, great, check. I've been keeping all of those since I was a little boy. But in only hearing what Jesus does say, he misses the message that's hidden in what he doesn't say. The five commandments that he leaves out. The other five of which have to do with our love for God, our wholehearted devotion for God. Jesus, he isn't saying that possessions or wealth are bad, so get rid of it all. He's holding up a mirror to the rich young ruler's heart in an effort to show him that his heart is divided. His heart is divided. And what is dividing his heart? Look at Luke 18, 22. But then Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing, Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will then have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Why does he tell him to get rid of everything he has? Again, it's not because he cared so much about the abundance of this man's possessions. It's because he saw that this man's possessions were possessing him, dividing his heart which was keeping him from being free to receive the eternal abundance that Jesus was inviting him into. When he heard this, Luke 18, 24 tells us, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. In the end, the rich young ruler counts the cost of Jesus' invitation and considers it too high of a cost. And in the end, he rejects Jesus' invitation. Now, no doubt the cost of following Jesus is high. If you've been walking with him for any number of years, you know that it is a high cost. Following him is hard at times, for sure. But friends, the cost of not following him is even greater. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, it is costly because it costs a man his life. But then he says this, and it is grace. Jesus' invitation to the rich young ruler, which is the same to us, is grace because it gives a man the only true life. The reward of following Jesus far outweighs its cost. We have to remember that perspective. Jesus' invitation to us through his exchange with the rich young ruler is to get rid of and give away anything and everything, not just because we should have less stuff. He's not playing on what we've now come to discover as like this incredible minimalist movement. It's not just so that we can live a happier life. He's saying get rid of everything as it relates to dividing and competing with our hearts devotion to God because it is a threat on your life. When you read the gospels, it's clear that that Jesus is not anti-wealth, nor does he ever say that poverty as it relates to our possessions is a prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom. But Jesus does have a lot to say about our attachment to material things. He has a lot to say about it and how our attachment poses a very real threat, a threat to distract us, a threat to distance us from God and a threat to divide our hearts, all of which enslaves us. Again, this is not about how much money or lack thereof that you have. It's not about the size of your house or how many things you own. It's about the competition for your soul. Releasing our grip on earthly possessions is not just for the super Christians in the room. It's not just for the super Christians in the room. It's for anyone who wants to experience the life that is truly life. When an abundance of possessions threatens to distract us and divide our hearts, Jesus invites us to find freedom through simplicity. In the words of Richard Foster, simplicity is freedom. Foster defines the practice of simplicity as this, an inward reality that reflects our outward lifestyle. We're going to continue to unpack that. But I highly recommend T. Foster's book called Freedom of Simplicity. It's incredible. It's been such a help to me and it's been incredibly convicting, but so good. And in that book, he goes on to write, contemporary culture is plagued by the passion to possess. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. Furthermore, the pace of the modern world accentuates our sense of being fractured and fragmented. We feel strained, hurried, and breathless. Any of you relate to that feeling? The complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more threatens frequently to overwhelm us. It seems there's no escape from the rat race. But then he says, Christian simplicity frees us from this modern mania. When materialism started to seep its way into the early church, the desert fathers fought back with the practice of simplicity. Check this out. In 8285, the emperor Diocletian assumed the throne in Rome and as a key strategy for securing his power and executing his plan to restore Rome to her former glory, he targeted the people whose loyalty to Rome was eclipsed by their loyalty to Christ. In an effort to force Christians to deny Christ, they confiscated their Bibles, stripped them of their legal rights and forced them to offer sacrifices to Roman gods. Under Diocletian's reign, Christians faced the last but most severe persecution that took place in the Roman Empire, resulting in the loss of thousands of lives and the imprisonment and the dislocation of thousands more. Several years later, Constantine raised an army to defeat his rival, and after taking the throne, he issued the Edict of Milan. And this edict granted Christianity legal status in the empire and decriminalized Christian worship. But that was just the start. Constantine's conversion to Christianity led to the subsequent favoritism of the Christian church. And as theologian Gerald Stitzer points out, Christianity in Rome gradually became fused. We need to hear this. Gradually became fused until the church of the martyrs became the church of the empire. A dramatic reversal of what had previously been the case. In less than a generation, Christianity ceased to be a persecuted faith and became a privileged faith. The cultural tide had turned dramatically and it had become almost trendy to be a Christian. On the surface, this was great news. Like the church attendance increased at an unprecedented rate, but as we know, numbers are not always the most helpful or true metric of health. And sure enough, although numbers continued to rise, people started to notice that the standards of discipleship began to decline. The threat of persecution was now ironically replaced by the threat of privilege. Interesting. And that privilege began distracting and dividing Christians wholehearted devotion to God. And it was in response to this watered down witness that a renegade group of followers of Jesus retreated to the desert, known as the Desert Fathers. See, as materialism and greed and consumerism infiltrated the church and sought to compromise and distract followers of Jesus, the desert fathers and mothers, they protested by fleeing to the desert, but they didn't flee in fear. Again, Stitzer helpfully points out that they withdrew not so much to escape problems, but to engage them. Built on the teachings and the example of Jesus himself, the desert fathers and mothers, they sought to live lives of undistracted devotion to Jesus with undivided hearts. And they did that by renouncing worldly possessions and their attachment to the things of this earth. Their flight to the desert, you can can watch this happen. You can look back and read the history. Their flight to the desert, it set fire to a counterformation movement of discipleship that paved the way for the monastic life that flourished for centuries and restored followers of Jesus to their prophetic witness in and to the world i wonder i wonder if maybe just maybe today we are living in an age where consumerism and materialism are a threat to our lives what do you think I wonder if we're living in an age where materialism and consumerism are a threat to our life and to our church. I wonder if our lives are weakened in power because we find ourselves more preoccupied and concerned with maintaining control and managing our comfort through consumerism, settling for a quick fix at the expense of experiencing the life that is truly life. Writing today's teaching was hard. (laughs) It's even harder to give it. Mostly because as I was reading and studying and praying and listening, I was so confronted. I was so confronted by the disparity in my own life around my habits of consumption compared to that of Jesus. I was confronted. And in God's kindness by his spirit, he has been convicting me I am so convicted, but in His kindness through that conviction, He is opening my eyes to see that the life that is truly life cannot be sustained in my attachment to stuff. And in fact, that stuff poses a threat to my relationship with Jesus. I don't wanna live dependent on stuff over and against dependence upon the Spirit, but I am so susceptible not just acceptable. I am guilty. It's not lost on me, the irony of the fact that I leave on Wednesday for an all-inclusive vacation. (laughs) Not that I have to feel bad about that, but I just am like, okay, God, I hear you, help me detach from all of the free stuff that I'm going to consume on this trip. (laughs) Lord have mercy. But I wonder if some of you here this morning are beginning to sense that same conviction and invitation from Jesus to let go of our attachment to possessions, not just for the sake of letting go, but so that we can lay hold of the life that is truly life in Him, but, but we can't just stop there. It's not just about us laying hold of it, it's so that we can then freely give it away. Foster encourages us and helps lift our eyes to see that the spiritual discipline of simplicity is not a lost dream. It's not a lost dream, but a recurrent vision through history. And then he says this with firmness, it can be recaptured today. It must. In the chapter just after Jesus's conversation with the rich young ruler, we read about another rich man named Zacchaeus. The text says Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus and listen to what happens, what, what happens when he actually sees Jesus. When Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, check out what he says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. When Zacchaeus saw Jesus and counted the cost, he counted correctly. Freely he gave because freely he knew that there was something to be received in the abundance of Jesus that he was being invited into. Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler are examples of Jesus's Word and warning to us in Luke 9. I'll read it again because we need to hear this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their very self? Other gospel writers say, or forfeit their soul Like Dallas Willard says, if we want to experience the life of Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so this week we've equipped our communities with some really great questions and some practices for you to be able to engage and enter into the practice of simplicity to get you started. So I'm not going to leave you with a bunch of things that you can go and do like cleaning out your closet and giving away all the stuff that you don't need. Maybe that is your next step. I don't know. But the first step is to get plugged into community because we need community to walk this out. And so if you're not plugged in, we'd love to help you get plugged in. Uh, And if that's just been taking a while, I'd love to send you those questions for you to be able to reflect and begin to go on a journey of detachment from our earthly possessions. But for this morning, I think a good place for us to start is by giving the spirit permission. I was reminded in worship just a few minutes ago of something that someone way wiser than I, I don't remember who said it or else I'd give him credit, but it just popped into my mind. I think this is from the spirit, that, that God waits to be wanted. God waits to be wanted. And something we say often around here is that God goes where he's wanted. I think if we want to open up our hands to, f- to, to be able to receive the abundance that Jesus has, we have to give him permission We have to come before him and confess our need that this is hard. This is hard, especially when we are living in a a cultural current of consumerism that is strong. This is hard for us. First, we have to admit that. And let's give him permission to speak in and, and to fill us with what we need to sustain us on that journey because it's a significant one of which Jesus says is life or death. And so this morning, as we open up this space for response, I wanna invite you just to stand with me now. Let's not miss it, friends. Let's not fall asleep to the song of consumerism that our culture is constantly singing. I don't wanna miss it. I don't wanna miss it. So let's lean in as we now prepare both our hearts and our bodies to respond to the Spirit's invitation that is for us in this room. Yes, let's open up our hands. Jesus, we invite you to come and to fill, to speak. God, we, we want to want you. Would you help us in that, Jesus? Stir our hearts now, God, as we respond to your word. Come, Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.